<laughs> exactly. I haven't eaten anything, man, and since last Tuesday, and today is Monday. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a roller coaster of emotions, of everything that you could imagine. And like you, I've been trying to. I mean, it's no good if you're fasting from food and then you just preoccupy yourself with movies all day, right? Mm. It really kind of defeats the purpose. So. For the last six days, I've been trying to get the minimal amount of screen time and just relax, rest, let my body do what it knows how to do. And the main reason I do it is for this de detoxification that you get and the, the incredible health benefits that I feel afterwards. Right now, not so much. I feel <laughs> really bad. Uh, but I know yeah. that the the benefits are something that I keep reminding myself of and on Wednesday probably is when I'm going to start eating some some juicy fruits again and I'm just counting the hours. Uh, the hardest part about it, actually, for me, hasn't been like hunger or um, like random pains around the body. It's been just trying to sleep at night. I, I have the hardest time going to bed. Wow. And... I guess it might be because I'm trying to go to bed earlier because I'm trying to make the day be over faster. <laughs> it's like, all right, day four, done. I'm just going to bed at eight o'clock. And I never go to bed at eight o'clock. And so I'm not used to it. My internal clock isn't really there. So I wind up just rolling around in bed for a while. But yeah, that's that's been the hardest thing, like the sleeping. And I sleep really light. I'm usually a really heavy sleeper. And I sleep really light. Anything wakes me up. And so that's it. There's our detox routines. But I think um, I think what's interesting about about this is is the the modern world that we we ha we live in is 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 so foreign to what our bodies are designed and adapted for. You know, if if we had lived ten thousand years ago, you know, not eating for a week might have been standard practice kind of yeah. pretty normal we would yeah. have been sort of foraging from feast to feast and um and we'd have certainly had zero screen time yeah. <laughs> um sure. so um so yeah it's it's uh it, it, it i think it's i think it's amazing i mean yeah, it's one really, thing really good. interesting about the fast is that most people say oh my god if i skip a meal i'll die you know i, I was trying <laughs> to convince my brother to do it and he was like dude if i go two days without eating, I will roll over and that's the last of me. Mm. But what happens when you start to fast is you don't get this like brain fog and just like uh, lethargic energy. You actually kind of, your senses go on hyperdrive. So my hearing <laughs> is so intense right now. My smell, I can smell when... My wife's cooking food, which she does every day, and that's a lot of fun to just smell the food. Uh, but I can smell it two rooms over, you know? And they say that the reason for that is because in these times of our ancestors, when they had to go out and hunt, if they were fasting or if they were on day... For them, I don't think it was fasting. It was just if they didn't find any food and it was like day five of not finding food, your body, 
you can't have your body all of a sudden just be like, oh, I'm just going to roll up into a ball and I'm so tired. Mm. I, I don't want to go anymore. You have to be fully on. And so like the mental clarity that I have is also one of the things that is incredible. I'm able to put sentences together better. <laughs> Words are hard, <laughs> but not as hard when you're fasting. Huh? <laughs> so, well, let's let's get into this idea of season two recap, because that's what we're all here for, right? We wanted to look at everything that we've been talking about. I mean, we had a phenomenal lineup for the last eight episodes. And I think there are some really interesting points that each one of these guests brought up and that we can weave into a general narrative. There's some things that were echoed in a few different guests. And, and so I want to talk about it, but I want to hear what stood out to you. What was uh, something that you really enjoyed and what stood out? Well, I, I think, I think as, as, um, as ever, I think uh, I've enjoyed listening to, uh, I've enjoyed listening to you. I think it's, it's, it sounds like you're having a huge amount of fun. Um, so, uh, so um, I think that's that's really enjoyable. I was talking to, to somebody this morning, in fact, and uh, she was saying how much she enjoyed the podcast, and oh, nice. um, and uh, she's like, oh yeah, Demetrius, he's like such a great personality, and yeah, he he seems to be like having so much fun doing this, and I. I, I just mentioned like your background. I felt that eighteen months ago you were you were living a very different world and yeah. not not in the tech world. No, and at all. Uh, she looked at me like sort of poker face, like really? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> like no way! Like this guy's an expert. I'm like no, no, no. He's he's just very, very good um, at what I he does. Know, I like to say that I know enough buzzwords to make it seem like I know what I'm talking about. Well, well, that was the funny thing about Dylan's interviews because you, you guys were talking about GPT three, mm. and um, and Dylan was like, yeah, like it, it, GPT three is just very good at like being able to, you know, kind of absorb words and replay them in something that's kind of passable. Like you understand yeah. what's going on, <laughs> and you were like, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> that's, like, <laughs> that's been my that's been my life for the last twelve months in, uh, yeah, in exactly. the AI world. But I think if the scary thing is, is if you if you do it enough, you actually do. Um, it's you not about something. faking it. It's about you actually you do build up a, a level of expertise. And um, yeah. you know, I think I think this sort of AI ethics space. You know, you uh, you're really owning. I mean, some of the questions um, you've had have been like absolutely on the money. Um, and talking of which, I think I think the interview with Zachary, uh, you know, you, you made a really, really, really interesting point there about how the difference between the difference between the kind of criticism of tech today and what needs to be done to fix it, and the criticism of tech twenty years ago around the Millennium bug, the Y two K bug, and what needed to be done to fix it, is just a very big difference in terms of where the money is, and. Um, and I think that was your point that you made was that 20 years ago, the money was in fixing the problem. And today, the money is in absolutely not fixing the problem. Yeah. Um, and I think that was Bring such a, such a great insight. About fixing the problem to make it seem like we're fixing the problem. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah that one was, it's really interesting to hear Zachary's point of view too, because he has been doing this. He's looking back at this Y2K. And for most of us, we can remember that period. I imagine mm. you remember it, right? And how much just hysteria was around 
that whole thing. And what's going to happen when the clock strikes 12? I remember my friends and I went and we were watching TV to see what happened in Australia because they were the first ones to go through it. And like, oh, nothing happened in Australia? All right, we're good. Let's go out. Yeah, I remember. I remember like the morning of January the first, two thousand, and kind of looking around and going, yeah, "Everything's still here. Everything's still working. Cars are still driving. Like we still have electricity. Like okay, this is good." And to Zachary's point, you know, it was we kind of look at the the UTK bug as a bit of a joke, but um, but it, it's a, it was an amazing achievement, actually, the fact that um, that we got through that whole process without, you know, too many problems. Uh, fun fact for you. Um, do you remember Dr. Rob Wortham, who you interviewed for season oh, yeah. one? So uh, in the 90s, he was actually running a Y2K consultancy company. No way. So he was running a sort of software engineering business that was fixing Y2K problems. And um, when I came across Zachary, um, I mentioned it to, uh, to to Rob. I spoke to him and I said, uh, hey, you never guess what? We, we, we've, um, we've met this guy who's studying Y2K for his doctorate, uh, you know, the history of, of, of Y2K. And, and Rob was, I'm not sure he knew how to take it, this idea that what was his life, what was his profession two decades ago is now being taught in in uh, computer science history classes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's almost like it was best practice because they were able to, like you said, miss, dodge a bullet. And mm. so we see it as something as a bit of a joke. It's like, why'd you get nothing happened there? Uh, so much hysteria. But as Zachary pointed out, there's a reason nothing happened because a lot of people worked so that we wouldn't yeah. have anything happen. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he made some great points. He And also, uh, just jumping around a little bit, I think we should talk about Merv's uh, podcast and when we spoke with her, because that one for me was, there was a lot of different pieces of the puzzle that came into play. And one part of Merv's podcast that I was doing my best to ask in a nice way, but I actually have been debating this a lot since the pandemic hit. You have countries that have been very, very hard on the contact tracing and just knowing where you are, where you've been. They have all of your data from your cell phone. They can access anything. And so that they know if you've come into contact with anyone that has potentially gotten COVID, right? Mm. And she wrote a whole blog article about why the US should not do that. Mm. And so I was looking at it and I had to ask her because it's like, hey, in China, they kind of got rid of the pandemic. And then, so aside from, I know there's some people out there that say, well, China lies. (laughs) And that could be very true. They could still be going through the pandemic right now and we have no idea about it. Uh, But I look like you also see South Korea. They did some really hardcore contact tracing, right? And they're, uh, I think they're actually going back up into a spike right now. But (laughs) at the time of recording, they were good with the pandemic. And so I was saying, wouldn't it have been better if we did that? 
or if the U.S. had taken some of these liberties, these you know these freedoms that we have, and been more strict on it. And I thought her answer was brilliant on how she said that. Yeah, maybe you could get it, but the problem is that there's no transparency with that, and how are they going to relinquish that power once they have it, right? Because all of this data that they're collecting on you, like then they're just going to someday say, okay, now we don't need to do this anymore. We're going to stop with this program that just gives us all this information and all this power over everyone, which if you look at the track record of just about any government, they don't tend to relinquish power that easily. Exactly. I think I think this is this is this is such a difficult problem. I mean, I, I um, you know, we, we we touched on this in our last recap episode, and I I, I said that um, I can't remember exactly the words I used, but it was you know I think the, the question the question for the century was you know this this mm. uh, this question of you know how does how does democracy going to work in a, in an age of kind of technological and omnipotence, um, yeah. and um, and you know. Is there is there an evolution for us to make in the West? Um, maybe t- more towards uh, what we see in China, or you know, are we, you know, uh, you know, w- what is the right balance for us to find as a as a as a species and and regulating the lives of eight billion people on this planet in a sustainable way? And you know, I don't have I don't have I don't have the answer to that. Um, but I did have a I did have a kind of I saw a few critical comments uh, in response to um, my words on the last recap. And um, I think all I would just want to underline is the fact that, you know, this is a debate we need to have and a, and a debate we need to be much more open about. Um, I think, you know, what, what's clear about, you know, certainly from, from Merv's interview is is that um, you know, there's a huge amount of data collection, which we're just, you know, not aware of in contexts where we, we, you know, maybe don't expect it, and particularly in the workplace. I mean, I think that was the thing. I um, I, I see. I'm I'm much more tuned now, having listened to Merv's um, uh, recording um, about uh, workplace analytics. I think is the euphemism that's caused um, or workforce workforce analytics. Yeah. And we Sounds actually look so peel. Yeah, when you peel back what is actually in that, it is you know looking at the the productivity, the data um, trail uh, of, of employees um, that gives you kind of clues into their productivity. And I think um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a big question about that at a kind of company employee level, but at a kind of state citizen level, it's the same question playing out. But it's, it seems that in the West, it seems uh, we're much more squeamish about, um, or government's much more squeamish about taking those steps and um, invading our privacy, and you know, I just find it strange that we're not we're not opening up some of those possibilities. It would be very simple for the government to um, you know to open the back door into the telecommunications infrastructure and to do a much much more effective contact tracing uh, than um, than we have today, uh, which is reliant on you know individuals. Um, uh, consenting, yeah. you know, through an app, um, assuming they've got a smartphone. Well, I don't have a smartphone. You know, I've got a, I've got a non-smartphone, <laughs> as you know. Um, uh, and um, so it means I can't do the the track and trace when I when I go somewhere um, because I my phone doesn't. I can't even spell QR code. I don't think. Um, so, uh, but I think there was an interesting 
contrast there between Merve um, and you know her really kind of examining the extent of data collection, and then Robbie, who made the opposite point, which is, you know, as a data citizen and having all of these rights um, uh, in kind of data space in data land, um, maybe there also ought to be obligations also. Yeah. And maybe some data we should be obligated to give up for the greater good. And um, and I think, you know, for my own my own journey, you know, many, many years ago, I was much more, um, you know, much more of a kind of activist in, in terms of surveillance and, and data privacy and my concern. And I think it was Barack Obama who... Um, who, who, who gave a very interesting, um, I'll ask Ria to, to research this and put it in the show notes if, if, if indeed it, <laughs> it passes a fact check. Um, but I'm sure it was Barack Obama who said that, um, you know, data um, where it came to health questions um, ought to be, um, you know, ought, ought to be in the public domain and ought to be used for, for research. Um, and if we can, if we can use sort of telemetrics from, you know, people's, um, biomet- you know, um, you know, physical health data, and if that can be used to kind of cure illnesses and 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 cure cancer, then it was almost our moral imperative to to allow it. And and I actually found his um, his his speech quite convincing, quite persuasive. And I think ever since watching that, I've been a little bit less extreme in my views on on what data should be uh, up to the citizen to, to decide on. But um, Yeah, this is a recurring theme, right? How mm. it's what data should we need to give over and what data should be ours and we can choose to give over. And the interesting part about that, going back to Robbie's, I think his idea, and he is just a wonderful thinker, every way that he looks at the problem and the future. I love the way his brain works because spending an hour with him will open your mind completely better than a few hits of LSD or (laughs) your favorite psychedelic, psychotropic. It's absolutely magical because I... And the thing that's brilliant is he loves to stay on top of it. You know, like I don't know many people his age who are, he, after we talked, he asked me, so what are you most excited about yeah. in the next like five years or technology wise? Yeah. And I was like, whoa, that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought that hard about it. Uh, and so he wants to stay on top of things and he wants yeah. to continuously like push the boundaries of his own thinking and his own limitations But going back to his talk and when he spoke about the idea of maybe you're like data guardian angel, I Mm. can't remember the exact words that he said, but it was really interesting, like your data security guard, where it's some kind of program or AI or whatever it may be that makes sure you know exactly what data is out there on you and how it's being used. Mm. So it's like able to tell you, okay, this data is being used. Like when Robbie went to, he called up his bank and the bank knew who he was just by his voice. Mm. And so that whatever program would be able to tell you before you call up the bank, like, okay, here, this bank is using your data, your voice recognition so that they can like confirm it's you. 
do you want them to do that or should we like revoke permission? Yeah. And so that is a very utopia way of looking at it. It would be amazing if that were actually true. That's like a best case scenario, right? Yeah. So we, um, so back, back about, um, five years ago now, I was at Deutsche Bank and, um, I was, uh, involved in all the, um, the sort of innovation technology, uh, that the bank was exploring. And we were looking at, um, two factor authentication, um, systems and, and alternative ways to authenticate, um, customers. And one of the most interesting um, things that we looked at was a company, and I can't remember the name of the company now, sadly, but um, they were looking at the, um, the the gyroscope data coming from a smartphone. So, um, you know, like how you hold the phone, um, and you know how the phone sort of tips as you as you touch it, um, and then how you you know if you enter a, a pin into the phone, yeah, like right. how you do that. Do that, and. Um, there was a demo that they gave where, you know, they, they said, right, you know, hold this phone and type in this PIN number. The PIN number is like, you know, 3672. And so you type it in and then um, they, they gave the phone like around the room and showed how the fingerprints, the, the digital fingerprints of the, of, the, um, of, of the gyroscopic data that's coming back from the phone was different for each person. And um, how they were able, basically, to authenticate somebody based on how they held the phone, and they they had some really interesting insights, such as you know they could tell you know obviously the gyroscopic data would be different if you were on a train on a moving vehicle to if you were like standing or walking if you were typing, but based on your routine they would know oh this person logs in on the train every morning at eight twenty. And so this is the fingerprint of the person on the train, or this is the fingerprint of the person walking. They were able to kind of detect this. And the other That's thing that was really cool about this was how it was so quick. You know, the um, you know when you type in, you know, if you think of like typing in a PIN number, you know, as soon as you got the fourth digit in, the system could authenticate. Yes, that's the correct PIN, and off you go. And you know, this didn't require any sort of major processing. You know, they had the data, and they were able to go, yep. Yeah, you know, 97.9% confident this is really the person that, that it's supposed to be, and that's above the threshold, so we'll let them in. But what was interesting is when they were looking at deploying this, um, they, they, they added a, a, what they called, I think it was um, an artificial theater to the process. And so they had this kind of graphic of some, like, stuff going on. Um, in order to give the user the perception that actually there was some kind of complicated kind of processing going on in the background because it made the user feel more secure. And I thought about this when we were interviewing Robbie and Robbie gave that example of him talking to his bank and the voice recognition system, you know, detecting him really accurately, really quickly. And, um, and I was thinking, you know, that might well be a situation where introducing an artificial piece of theater into the process um, might have been a smart thing for that bank to have done. Um, yeah. but, but staying with Robbie, um, I, I'm pretty sure, um, so obviously Robbie was, was right in the middle of um, season two, but I'm pretty sure Robbie was one of the first guests that you must have interviewed because, um, yeah. you know, when we were kind of still in the planning stages for this podcast before we launched, I remember um, sitting at home one evening listening to a few of the kind of the raw, unedited um 
cuts and uh, and i listened to robbie um and uh you know i did like 10 minutes in 12 minutes in he was talking about um shamanic um disembodiment (laughs) and i was like wow (laughs) this is gonna be this is gonna be such a good podcast if we can keep this up um but of course in this um in this season i think we really have because you know i think robbie Robbie's uh, interest in looking at alternative epistemologies and realizing that the way that we see and perceive the world is is not the same between individuals, between peoples across different cultures, um, you know, was a really good segue into then your conversation with Jason. Uh, yeah. And um, and I think for me, what what was so poignant, you know, I, I, we touched on racism in in season one a little bit um but again coming back to that question with with jason is that um you know i think i think it was so powerful um what what he was saying that um you know he doesn't care if if the engineer is racist or not racist or you know whatever they say about their worldview what he cares so strongly about is the impact that that they have the thoughtless impact the so not considering the consequences of of the impact, and particularly on on people who um, have unfortunately been on the on the on the wrong end of 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 technological, uh, I'll say progress, but it's the wrong word to use. On, on you know, as technology has changed the world, it's not changed the world for the better for for, for certain groups in society. And he wants to make sure that that is not also true of AI. And I I found that there was so much to think about. From that, from that, um, from that conversation with him, that that I'd never, never had 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 the, uh, you know, had, had the opportunity to do so before. What, what yeah. did you think from that chat with 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 Jason? Well, with Jason, the one thing that I, that my biggest takeaway, and a yes to your point, like wow, the impact that someone can have behind a computer. <laughs> and not realize the impact that they're going to have is a little bit scary sometimes when you think about that, right? Like they're, like, like he was saying, it doesn't matter what their beliefs are, what their worldviews are. What I think was my biggest takeaway is how he said, when you are faced with a decision, it's very rare that you step back and you say, do I really need to be making this decision in the first place? Or is this just a culmination of my worldview? Is Mm. this just because I think it should be this way, right? Like, so his whole idea of should I be making this decision or does this decision actually need to be made was something that I was able to go, wow, that is one thing that is going to expand my thinking and the next time I'm at an obstacle and I think, oh, it's either A or B, then taking a step back and maybe I'm not asking the right questions or maybe I'm not looking at this from a different perspective because like he was saying, in our westernized way of looking at things, it's very easy to think, oh, it's got to be this way. But if you look at it from a different cultural perspective, you may see things completely different. And yeah. so the power and the way that we make decisions, I think was my biggest takeaway there. And again, it was an amazing talk. We talked for a while, I think, uh, just because yeah. it was like 
I'm not going to cut him off. Uh, let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm free for another hour or so. Let's just keep talking. It was so fascinating to listen to him and to just gain all this insight, really. And he was able to share it freely. He was really, really generous with his time. And I had a blast talking to him. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that's the thing I've, I've loved so much about this project and, you know, my own participation in this is that, you know, we've been very lucky uh, doing what we do and coming across people like, like Jason and, um, and then, you know, myself, you know, being involved in, in the briefing call with him, um, you know, we just had such a really interesting chat and, uh, um, you know, it opened up my own uh, eyes to, to, to so much. And so, um, no, it's been, it's, it, you know, for, for me, I think it's been the, the thing that I've enjoyed so much about this is just being behind the scenes, talking to some of these guests, hearing their perspective and realizing that there's just so much, so much thinking that's outside of the mainstream that is so important um, to, uh, to, to make. Um, that for me was, you know, he was talking about how we need to look at being more respective and of machines or having more empathy for machines mm. as they become like the I'm sure most people have seen right now the viral video of Boston Dynamics dancing robots and except for you because you've been detoxing oh is this I mean this, this isn't uh, the dog opening the door thing no you gotta see it you'll see it later once you're okay <laughs> days in for, of non-detoxing but the thing about that was that I asked him like how do you expect us humans to be more empathetic to machines when we're looking at animals and the way that we treat animals right now which we know are living breathing conscious beings we're not at all empathetic to them mm. right like so how do you expect that idea to go to machines and that was something that he he like stopped he had his cadence of talking really fast and then he stopped and it was like uh yeah i haven't thought about that uh that's a really good one and i still i i'm very i don't want to say pessimistic but i'm doubtful that we're going to be able to bring that mentality in to the machines when you you look at how we treat animals right now and it's not yeah. anything like that although um so this this is this is an area where i'm i'm still um i'm still formulating a view myself and obviously you know physical treatments of machines you know i i i if if someone were to you know take a, a piece of complicated machinery and and you know exerts a wanton destruction on it then you know i would i would judge that behavior as being wrong because it's you know just a waste of resources for 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 no other for, for no other reason um but i don't see any reason why we need to treat um machines with any any sort of level of respect that we would treat um you know animals or people with um other than the fact of respecting you know a thing of value, a thing of intricacy, a thing of, you know, a thing of, um, and I think you can admire the, 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 you know, the, the, com the complexity of the machine and admire the, the technology. I mean, certainly when I, when I get a new device, you know, I, I look at it in awe of how thin it is or how light it is. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it deserves to be 
treated with respect because you know the technology that we have is is amazing today. Um, but I, I don't I don't see any having any kind of um, special quality. And in fact, um, I'd go further than that. And something I've been I've been thinking about for the last few years and haven't quite yet managed to get it down into an article is whether in fact we should we should not um, be polite to machines um, so when we talk to Siri or talk to Alexa um, or um, the other one uh, <laughs> whether we should um, you know whether we should say please and thank you when we're asking us a question or addressing it um, and um, and in fact some of the companies you know um, I think it was Google um, uh, or Amazon, I, I think it was Google, um, um, introduced a sort of an incentive um, that it's uh, depending on how polite you were to the voice agents, um, depended on like you, you, got, you almost got like a, a thank you back in response or you got a, a slightly different tone of voice back in response for yeah. being politeness. It was like a, a politeness reward for, for talking to Alexa. Um and I and I, I worry about that because if we if we if we do start talking to machines in the same way that we talk to humans, um, do we um, by doing so diminish um, our appreciation for the agency of, of humans? So if I ask you to do something for me, I would I would ask you hopefully in a respectful way that that acknowledges your your agency, your choice, your free will to to say no, um, and um, but but. By by asking Alexa and, and and phrasing the question as if Alexa has any choice in the matter, um, am I in some way um, taking something away from when I have the same request of a human? I don't know. That's something I'm I'm still still questioning well, myself. Kind of goes back to when we were talking with Ravi and his thought experiment, which was about the robot that comes to you every day, and after a while, does it just get sick of hearing your shit? <laughs> right like it's like oh the same thing you know and do you program it to be subservient the whole time so that it just like puts up with it uh, or do you program it so that it actually has a little bit of attitude and it says you know what I've heard you complain about your boss for the last three days in a row like get over it or change your life mm. so that's uh, those are some deep questions that we have to look at and the way that we talk to the robot, knowing that it's robot, what I think is, is that if we get used to talking to them poorly, then where's the line? Like, it's going to be hard to change all that much. You'll get used to just talking to people poorly too. Right? I don't like, know. That's that's I think I think I think the reverse could be true equally. Um, so I mean I have I have I have a um, uh, um, uh, setup where I've got um, a, a smart heating system um, and Alexa, and um, so I um, I regularly you know interrogate Alexa, finding out you know what what's the temperature in this room, um, and then make a decision as to whether I want to adjust the temperature. And I, I catch myself from saying, you know, saying that in a kind of, in a fully, you know, as, as in a human sort of, sort of sentence versus, you know, temperature in kitchen. Uh -huh. um, and because and, I don't need to add any more words to, to the sentence for it to understand me. Um, and I wonder whether, I wonder whether by, by 
adding all the fluff and the floweriness to the to the conversation, to the words I use to Alexa, whether it in some way diminishes the value of a human conversation. That, that's the thing I, I worry about. And, and, and you had this conversation with, with Dylan about um, the phonograph, um, the Edison phonograph and how it changed our relationship to music. And I think that's that's the 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 consequence of what we're going to go through now. This this ten years is going to be the ten years of you know the last ten years was the ten years of the of the app, um, the mobile app. This this decade is going to be the the decade of the of the chatbot and the conversational agents. And so these things are going to become ubiquitous. Um, and so many of the tasks that we use web for, that so many of the tasks that we use apps for, we're going to be doing via voice or by text chats over the next 10 years. And so it will become mainstream. And a generation from now, two generations from now, our relationship with technology will be defined by these choices that we're going to be making over the next 10 years. But also not just our relationship with technology, but our relationship with each other will, will change as a result. In the same way that our relationship around music, our relationship to music, you know, we we, we, we would have seen music as a live, you know, as, as a live performance pre-recorded music and now we see a difference between recorded music and a live performance so i think all of us would prefer to go to a live gig um, um uh, than something that was recorded and highly produced and 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 um you know perfect perfectly uh, reproduced every time but we um but but it's different it, it's, it's not better or worse it's just different and i think that you know the, the consequences will be those choices that we make over the next 10 years and i'm not saying that you know everyone should follow my lead and bark orders to siri or or alexa but um i uh I do. I do question this. This, and I. And particularly, what I worry about is when a technology company creates an incentive for the user to be polite to the device. It's imposing its own moral and ethical judgments on its user base. Yeah. And if its user base is just ten or twenty people, then so what? But if it's Amazon or Facebook and its user base is counted in the billions then that's a social engineering experiment being played out across millions and well, billions of lives. Yeah. And I think that's then problematic, and that's why we need to start to have more debate about these things. Well, it goes back to that whole thing. Like A few engineers behind a computer can have serious effects that they didn't even think about because these yeah. topics aren't being brought up in their circles. Yeah. And so they're not thinking about those consequences. So, yeah... I mean, let's uh, let's touch on. I feel like it's a good segue to touch on what I spoke about with Paul, because Paul's was all about regulation, and I think my main takeaway from this was the idea of having a regulation that will contain or benefit or like make it okay for us to do AI in a safe way is absurd, right? Like there can be no blanket regulation for this. There are so many specific use cases for machine learning and for artificial intelligence that you can't say, here's the regulation and you're going to hamper one end, which probably doesn't need that regulation on it in the first place. And then you're going to potentially destroy another end. Mm. And so you have to be very diligent and thoughtful about how you do regulation. And it needs 
deep, deep thought. And it goes back to the conversation that I had in season one um, with, I can't think of his name right Sebastian? now. Yeah, with Seb. About regulation and how he was telling me about how because there's so many different use cases, even just for, the, for one thing, there's so many different use cases for one potential sector or one potential model even that mm. you're putting out there to regulate that in a way that is useful and is actually helpful for us is so difficult. And it is really because there's so many of them. So that's something I've, I found with Paul. He was going against the grain right? A little bit, but it, it's in a very logical way. And I like the way that he talks about it. He's not saying regulation is bad per se. He's saying that we need the right regulation. And yeah. what he's seen so far, he hasn't really thought was the right way to go about things. Yeah. And I think, I think this is where the relationship between MLOps and, and AI ethics kind of come in because, um, you know, it's one thing having a regulatory framework, but it's another thing implementing it. Mm-hmm. And I think because of the, you know, I think the thing which which we all get caught out with with AI is, you know, we, we use the term AI so so freely, but um, what we're what's disguised in those two initials is a, a very complex uh, uh, supply chain. Um, and you know, you've got you know, you've got obviously you've got algorithms, you've got data, and you've got computes as the sort of the three basic um, elements of, of machine learning. But um, you know, but then even even uh, looking one step beyond that, you can see that you know if, if you've got a self-driving car and it's a malfunction, um, you know, finding the cause of that malfunction is is a is a is can be a real um, needle in a haystack exercise. You know, was it the was it because it was running on this particular version of TensorFlow at that particular moment, and if it was running on a slightly different version, it would have had a different result? Or was it the um, was it the hardware implementation uh, that caused uh, the unexpected consequence, or was it simply there was faulty data coming in, or was it you know? And so there's a there's a very complex um, and, and I think Paul was right that you know these things have been worked out. Um, uh, from a liability standpoint, and we, we've already got all the rules and all the laws we probably need. But I do think we need to kind of bring that down to, um, we do need to find kind of practical uh, ways of, of implementing this. And I think what, what excites me so much is um, seeing the MLOps community um, evolve and and platforms like uh, Grace from, from 2021.ai um, you know, those guys are starting to think about how do you build a compliance and regulatory uh, landscape and then implement that to your models. And and I can see a, a scenario there where you know if you're using um, you know a particular um, you know type of, of system like a you know a GAN or a, a random forest, then you know your your approach um, might be flagged up as particularly high risk in certain scenarios. If your use case is touching on you know personally identifiable information or you know certain use cases, um, and maybe you know some versions of um, of your framework might be uh, might be flagged as being you know, high risk for other other scenarios because bugs have been found, and I and I, and I think that's where an MLOps platform 
um, sort of version controlling um, uh, and data lineage environments can be quite useful in in meshing to their regulatory standpoints. But the regulators have to do something, and obviously they're not technical people. Um, and you know, I, what I found most fascinating about the conversation with Paul was you were talking with somebody who wasn't a technical person, but was somebody who was grappling with this complexity. And um, you know, it. it, 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 it it, it, I think it really highlighted how difficult a challenge it is. And from a from a public policy perspective, um, you know, governments, uh, particularly in the EU, um, you know, they've they've set themselves a political hurdle now of, 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 of a political challenge for saying we are going to regulate the tech industry, we are going to take action to make sure AI is trustworthy. And when we say trustworthy, we mean you know safe, lawful, and ethical. Um, and then, you know, that's a very easy statement to make. And then the next st- the next stage of that is, well, how? <laughs> well, that's pretty yeah. difficult, in fact. And I think what I've really enjoyed working with Paul and um, and his his colleague John at the Global Digital Foundation over the last few months has been, you know, thinking this through from you know from a public policy perspective down to a industry perspective, what that actually means in practice and. Um, you know, what, one of the things I know Paul is is working on is trying to launch a, a supply chain centric initiative. There's quite a few kind of regulatory um, governance initiatives around the world, like GPI um, from the OECD, but but um, they all tend to focus in on one part of supply chain. So, you know, as a chipset designer. What do chipset designers need to make sure that they have to do to be compliant and to avoid regulation? Or as a data controller or as a data processor or as an algorithmic designer or as a software systems integrator. But no one's thinking about this holistically across the supply chain, Um, um, or at least not many people are. But the Global Digital Foundation and and Paul McDonnell is is one group who, who are thinking about this. And um, I know that they've, you know, working with um, some of the big tech companies in trying to understand the, 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 the relationship and the obligations between different aspects of that supply chain. But it's not an easy job and it's going to be something which is going to take, I think, a few years to, to work through. Well, maybe we should talk for a moment about this EU regulation because I know that you had shared something, I think, in Slack about how it's not out yet, or it is out. Uh, it was coming out, the new kind of regulations that they're going to put into place. Can you just yeah. explain that a little more? Yeah, we should maybe do an episode on on the regs, um, yeah. because it, this is something which is going to touch, you know, everyone working in the AI industry. Um, and what surprises me is how many people who are you know, data scientists or involved are just not aware of, of what's coming down the pipe from the EU. Um, so I think maybe an episode on this would be would be really useful. Um, and also for citizens, um, you know, I think every every user of the web is familiar with GDPR um, because we're on the on 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 the uh, you know on the other end of it. Um, but I think it'd be useful for citizens as well. You know, people who are not necessarily in the tech industry. Uh, listening to this podcast to understand, you know, what is the EU doing? Um, and even for those people listening who are outside of the EU, like uh, like I am now, uh, over here in Britain, um, but, uh, you know, it's going to affect us all because, um, you know, that's the uh, the so-called Brussels effect of, uh, 
of um, you know when when somebody wants to bring a product to market, um, you know having 27 com- countries to uh, to make that product conform to, um, it, it just has the consequence of meaning well you know if we're going to have to make it conform to the standard for these 27, then we might as well adhere to that standard you know wherever we do business. Um, and so, you know, what what we've seen with GDPR is it spawns, you know, other similar data protection regulations in other in other jurisdictions like Australia, um, California, obviously. Um, and I think we're going to see the same with the AI regulations. So, I mean, the AI regulations. I mean, this is this is going to be the big news of 2021. Um, they're, they're they're due for um, draft publication. So, the way the process works in 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 Europe is that. Um, uh, the Commission, um, you know, basically uh, propose um, regulations or directives, um, and they go through a process of doing so. And the, the sort of the, the starting point was a year ago when they were publishing their political um, uh, ambitions, and I think it was 19th of February 2020. Um, the document came out, which was um, uh, called uh, Europe's Digital Future. Um, and um, this really set out the ambition that Europe has for, um, for for technology. And at the same time, they also published a white paper um, on AI regulation, which made a few um, um, uh, proposals in terms of how we might start thinking about the AI industry. Um, and one of those things was about essentially um, risk assessments. You know, whether we, how we look at the risk of the system. Do we look at it from an industry-centric perspective and say, well, this industry is high risk and this industry is not so high risk, or do we look at it a use case perspective, or do we look at it from a technology perspective? Um, and so certainly that's um, that's that's one of the things that went through the consultation process in the white paper. And it was open to the public. We all had an opportunity to respond. Um, And then at the end of that process in the autumn of last year, um, uh, something called an impact assessment was made, which basically set out, you know, four or five um, alternative paths for the the regulations to, to follow. Um, and um, basically considered, you know, what what might happen and what the impact on fundamental rights might be of each of those parts. And that's just part of Europe's kind of bureaucratic process. Um, so now, as we speak, uh, and as this podcast gets 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 uh, published, um, the, the 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 people who are doing the drafting in the Commission will be busy writing words, um, and um, we. We, we're expecting to see it at any day, but I guess um, the word on the street is end of March, beginning of April is when we're going to okay. see the draft. And so the question is, is it going to be a regulation or is it going to be a directive? And um, without going into European law too much, um, there's just a, you know, it's, it's, it's just a sort of difference in terms of um, you know, how it's implemented. Um, but I think we, we're likely to see a regulation. That's certainly what I hear from, from people who are closer to this than I am. Um, and I say we're likely to see this comes come out in in April, um, and um, and and what I what I suspect we're going to see is some very strong encouragement from the European Commission um, that industry need to find solutions to regulate themselves, um, and. Uh, it, you know that that should that will be happening, and there will be specific re- regulation in high risk um, places. 
And high-risk places will, will, will mean, you know, things like facial recognition, things like autonomous driving, um, uh, you know, things, uh, military applications have been ruled out. That was actually right at the get-go. They said, we're not going to, military applications of AI are going to be out of scope. Um, in many respects, that's a shame because um, that's probably where the greatest harms are. <laughs> uh, but it's also probably the easiest place for them to identify what controls they need to put in place. Um, so I think there's going to be a kind of a mixed diet. Sorry to use the food analogy on you, D, but um, there's going to be, you know, the if if the hard regulations of the meat and the soft regulation of uh, of, of industry-led um, initiatives are the vegetables, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's going to be a mixture of both. Um, and um, but we'll know for sure. And and once the once the draft legislation gets published in March April time. Um, then the baton gets passed to the European Parliament um, and it will go through the political process. Um, but essentially, the direction of travel will be set at that point and then it will then be a negotiation of the detail. Um, and the best guess I have is that we will see these things passed into law 2024, mm. uh, 2023, perhaps, um, and probably coming into effect maybe a year or so after that. So if it follows GDPR in terms of the way that it went through the process, we're still a few years away from AI regulations, um, you know, having to be compliant and facing penalties if we fail. Um, so we're still a few years away from that. But it means that, you know, if we're building AI, if we're marketing AI, if we're thinking about AI use cases, and we're not taking these regulations into consideration today, we're just incurring unnecessary cost and Headaches yeah. for ourselves. Eventually, you're going to have to do something about it. So, exactly. Might as well start now. And that was the point that Dan Jeffries made. I think you said, you know, man, this is expensive. <laughs> you know, by, by by thinking about governance and getting it right, that sounds expensive. And I think Dan came straight back to you and said, man, it's expensive getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it was and, like, um, you know, what's more expensive: killing yeah. somebody. Your car doesn't do yeah. the right thing. Exactly. So. Yeah, and I completely agree with him on that. And it's really interesting along those lines is these small startups that have limited funds that are trying to just yeah. get product market fit, yeah. how they now have to be thinking about something like that. And yeah. if there's a lot of these companies now that are coming out and their whole business model revolves around machine learning, and it's like, well let's make sure that this machine learning is going to be a viable solution, not just in the next two years, but in the next 10 years. And so you got to be thinking about these things. Yeah. And, and, and this, this, was, this was, I think, one of the most important points made over the whole season was, was this, is, is, is how do you, you know, how do you, how do you kind of grapple with this question and how do you, how do you get it right? Because, I don't think it's okay just to only look at um, you know the big tech companies. Um, and the reason I, I give you or, 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 or scale applications, I should say, and the reason I'll give is um, going back to Google. Um, you know, Google uh, in whenever they launched Gmail in two thousand five, two thousand six, whenever it was, two thousand three maybe. Um, you know, at the time, the email. Um, ecosystem was full of like you know small to medium sized players who were all offering kind of you know 10 megabyte accounts or 100 megabyte accounts for five pound a month or 10 pound a month or you know six dollars a month or whatever there was like a whole magnitude of 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 different there's a whole market 
of different things provided. And then Google came in and said, screw that. You know, you're going to get 100 megs or gig and you're going to get it for free. And guess what happened? Everyone flocked to Gmail and, and they, they built market share. Yeah. And of course, we all knew that Google were, you know, the trade that we had was free email in return for Google looking through our data and um, using it to better inform uh, the marketing algorithms. Um, and, you know, we, we many of us were okay with that. Um, and it was only, I think, in 2016 or 2018, much, much, much later than Google said, "Okay, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to, we're not going to use the content of, of email." But by that point, they'd wiped out, you know, a whole chunk of, of the marketplace. You know, the, those companies that um, that existed in, you know, pre Gmail just don't exist anymore. They are out of business. They they're gone. And I think this is the problem that if you're a startup or if you're um, a large company um, building something on the side um, and uh, you get a free pass on ethics, then, you know, there's this there's this opportunity that you have to mm. skew, skew the market in your favor and then bolt on the ethics later once you've achieved your market dominance. And I think that's a dystopian outcome. We need to be guarding against that. And so I think it's really important that um, the new regulations that we that we see from the European Union, um, you know, d don't apply a kind of one size fits all on small companies and large companies, but at the same time, don't give small companies or don't give side projects a free pass. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite, I would just add to this, is that um, you know I was. Um, like many people, very interested in seeing what Facebook have been doing over the last few years with their oversight board. And um, there was a, um, a really great um, a webinar in the summer of last year um, with, um, um, I've forgotten the, name, the, the chap's name, uh, Noah Feldman, who uh, was one of the uh, principal designers of, of, of the kind of constitution of that um, oversight board. Um, and he made his point, which I, I suspect is kind of reflected, you know, it, it was a reflection of, of the senior leadership of Facebook, which was, um, you know, the problem that Facebook has is it has like, you know, two billion plus users, and therefore it can't be kind of pandering to everyone's everyone's needs. It has to kind of make strong decisions on on behalf of everyone. And, and, and this, the point he was trying to make was actually it's very – it's really hard for a company with 2 billion users to, to get this stuff right. And almost that was an excuse <laughs> for them to kind of not necessarily be perfect. And the opposite is true to that statement. You know, if you, if you are, if you're in a fortunate position of market dominance where you have 2 billion users uh, or even Amazon with, you know, slightly less, but, you know, <laughs> Despite um, Mr. Bezos's claims, you know they're very much too big to fail. They are very much an organisation that is so um, you know intrinsic to 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 modern life. You, the imperative on you is just so much higher, surely, surely. <laughs> um, and so I think this is the challenge for the regulation. It can't be one size fits all, but it also has to somehow um, acknowledge the fact that some organisations do carry an immense reach um, or other organizations might find highly profitable ways of, you know, sailing close to the wind and achieving market dominance to the detriment of everyone else who's being more ethical. 
and the regulatory frameworks need to adjust to that and and guard against that. And I don't envy anyone in that space because it's very hard, I think, to find that balance. And I think really that was a big takeaway from the conversation with Paul is it is damn hard. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, I think we should probably talk a little bit about what you're doing at Ethics Grade now because it goes along those lines, right? Like you're trying to figure out how people can, like you said, not sail too close. <laughs> what was the analogy you used? It's sail close to the wind. And yeah, yeah, there's so many valid points in what you just said too. Like it's such a, again, it goes back to these, it's such an intricate problem. And there's so many different ways that you have to look at it from the technology side to like you were just talking about, like this greater just business side, which is taking the market share if you do things that are a little unethical. But tell us about Ethics Grade a little bit and what you've been up to there. Yeah, so we, you know, we, first of all, we don't we don't want to use this as a platform to um, to sell ourselves too much, but um, it's nice to have the opportunity from time to time, perhaps, to uh, to, to kind of insert ourselves into the message. Um, I mean, put simply, um, it's really hard um, to discern between companies and products um, uh, from a perspective of understanding how much they have your back. And it's, it's made particularly hard because the marketing teams of those companies do such a great job of convincing you that they've all got your back. And as we've heard now in two seasons, um, we've heard the same names again and again, without meaning to shame you know, Amazon or Apple or Facebook or Google or Microsoft or IBM. Um, you know, the big tech companies have such an impact on our lives. Um, they have a huge um, you know, responsibility and obligation to to um, to discharge that, that obligation in a, in, a, in a responsible way and the marketing um, the marketing departments of those companies make it very difficult for us as ordinary citizens to see the difference and so um, so seeing that um, and recognizing that that that's exactly the same problem that we saw not quite a generation ago um, but you know five 10 15 years ago around the oil and gas industry and climate change, um, actually, the solution I think is common between the two, and that's uh, you know we can we can rate companies based on the quality of the governance that they have, um, and we can we can understand that based on two things: one being the quality of the governance that we can see and we can see evidence of in in, in external world, and secondly, what they what they tell us and what they open up and reveal to us, and so um, so really that's what ethics grade. Is about, and that's our mission: is to is to help um, you know help people uh, discern between um, between organisations uh, and between the values that organisations have. Um, and you know, ultimately, you know, we we see sort of two um, primary um, customers of 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 our research and our, our, our analysis. Um, firstly, there's you know people like you and I. Um, the listeners of this podcast, you know, if you're going to buy a new smartphone or a new uh, smart fridge or, an auto- or a smart car, uh, you know, autonomous uh, self-driving car, um, you know, you, uh, we think that you, you'll be interested to compare uh, the quality of governance um, um, between, you know, a Samsung and an Apple or a Tesla and a Toyota 
um, much in the same way as you'd compare any other feature that the product might have. And so um, certainly we think that the European uh, regulations on AI are going to include some scope for uh, labeling um, of, of, uh, of, of the kind of the governance components behind the scenes of, of AI systems. And much in the same way that um, a fridge or television has an energy label on the side of it, um, Ethics Grade are, are building a, a, a solution which, um, which will enable you to buy a product with a si same sort of simplified um, um, uh, view of, you know, this compares to that, this is better than that. And we do that by looking at the governance. We're not making judgments as to whether we agree with a company or not. We're not saying that, you know, we think that this company is more ethical than that company. All we're saying is we think this company has better governance around these questions. Um, and, and part of that is about the company communicating um, it's it's ethical choices um, in it, in its literature. So um, not just talking about the principles that they have, because as Jan Jeffrey said, principles are kind of pointless. Um, you yeah. know, everyone can come up with the same six words of things we believe in. Um, what we're looking at is beyond that. What are, what are the protocols that exist? What are the governance that exists? And the second um, the second uh, consumer of our data is is not just ordinary people, uh, consumers and, and buyers of this stuff, um, but the finance industry, because um, much in the same way that um, with climate change, um, uh, the finance industry has suddenly become much more discerning about investing in companies which have a positive, um, sustainable strategy. Uh, we think the same is going to be true of, of the finance industry um, investing in companies with um, a strong track record of technological governance. And so, you know, what, what's happened in 2020, and this has kind of really been um, and a massive accelerant, we think, to our business model is in 2020, all the big uh, tech, uh, all the big investment houses became tech investment houses, um, because whereas you know in the past there was much more diversified portfolios into other industries such as leisure and hospitality and travel and yeah oil and gas, dare I say, um, you know you know in 2020 everyone's been investing in tech. And because um, all of our pensions are invested in tech and, you know, in the investment houses have been so busy um, trying to understand the tech industry, um, what they maybe don't have such a great insight into is the risks that the tech industry carry. And, you know, those risks are risks like, you know, Cambridge Analytica type scandals or Taybot type scandals um, or employee surveillance type scandals. Um, and you know what? What we see, and we we saw this last year with with British Airways and and Marriott with big data breaches. We saw it with Barclays Bank and employee surveillance. Um, obviously, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. When and, and it is a when, sadly not an if. Um, when a company makes a mistake with technology, um, uh, and, and it's a it's a high profile mistake. Um, it hits their share price. It makes the, the cost of of capital higher, um, and obviously that's bad news for investors and, and the investment industry. And so what we want to try and do is ensure that we're giving the investment community the insights that they need in order to be able to price those decisions. And the consequence of that is, you know, if um, if investors are aligning themselves to companies which are, or if they're able to say, if they're able to see the difference between companies who have a good control of the governance and those who are playing 
a little bit fast and loose, um, then um, hopefully that will act as a positive nudge towards more companies adopting stronger governance. And and, and we think that's a good thing. Um, so, so, yeah, this is a big year for us at Ethics Grade. At the moment, if you... If you go to our website, ethicsgrade.io, um, you won't see much other than some thought leadership from us and a white paper that we wrote a year ago. Um, but um, we're planning to launch uh, this quarter in Q1. And um, in 2020, we rated 125 companies. Um, and in Q1, we'll be busy um, publishing uh, the research on our website. And so, um, yeah, stay tuned and Maybe uh, six weeks from now, uh, you'll be able to literally compare Toyota and Tesla um, uh, from an ethics governance perspective when you buy your next self-driving car or indeed oh, yeah. Samsung or Apple um, or Alibaba versus Amazon. That's the plan. Yeah. And when you're going through and you're rating these companies, is it like you're doing an audit on their AI systems or how does that actually look? I'm sure there's a big matrix that you're looking at but can you break that down a little bit yeah so we do we do offer an audit service um which is um uh, not kind of perfectly uh our business model but we've partnered up with for humanity which is a a big uh a, a volunteer group of about 100 experts um who are building an ai audit and we've we've licensed that audit and, and that's something which we offer to clients um, and that's down at kind of you know systems data process level, um, um, and um, you know we think that's pretty robust, uh, uh, and obviously a much more a much more kind of complicated exercise. What we offer sort of a, the bulk of what we offer are kind of really two services. One is a health check, which is really a question of of looking at the maturity of of an AI strategy. And today we we only focus really on AI. Um, but you know, over time, you know, we will hope to cover more things than AI, and ultimately, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to hope that we can cover more of the diversity and inclusion um, questions, and also environmental sustainability. Um, but basically, the, the health check is, um, is is a, is a is a maturity assessment. You know, looking at the various things that an organisation has to look at. In fact, many of the things that you and I spoke about um, in February. 2020, when we first met, and I was interviewed for the MLOps um, community um, podcast. Um, so, you know, a health check is, is essentially looking at the maturity of an organization, the alignment of stakeholders. And that really highlights the risks that an organization maybe have different constituent groups looking at things in a different way or not having a really coherent strategy. So that's kind of one thing we look at. Um, and then the second service we offer is is a benchmark, and the, basically the benchmark is um, is really useful because from a from a ratings perspective, we can look at publicly available information, um, which is basically you know what is available in the public domain, also the marketing around an organisation, but also when we contact the companies that we've rated, the information that they've given us about their processes, their policies, their procedures, etc. But the benchmark is when we go into an organization and from the inside do an assessment of the quality of the governance that they have. And what's really interesting is, you know, we had a few, um, um, you know, beta clients in, in 2020 um, doing this. Um, we discovered that actually in some areas, organizations are often quite, quite a lot better than we thought they were. 
So they actually have a lot, a lot of kind of good stuff. And, and I'll give you one example: is Microsoft. Microsoft, um, you know, has a an ethics committee. It's called Ether. They talk about it a lot, um, but from the outside, they don't talk about who is on, you know, the committee. Um, and, and what the composition of the committee is, how they make decisions, when they meet, the sorts of decisions they make, the process they go through to make a decision, none of that detail is available in the public domain. And so unfortunately, because that's the case of Microsoft, um, assuming that they, that committee is genuinely there, which I'm sure it is, because um, you know, they're a fine organization, um, you know, it's, it's clear that the, the quality of the governance that does exist on the inside is better than what's visible on the outside. And so Microsoft would be an example of an organization which would score much better um, on a benchmark than they would on a rating. Um, and so we would encourage, you know, organizations like that to be much more transparent about what they actually do. Um, because it can give people on the outside much more confidence in their ability to to manage these things. But obviously, the reverse is also true, and sadly, the reverse is is predominantly true, where organisations, um, you know, and obviously with um, with with a scandal with Timnit Gebru uh, in December, and, and, yeah, I mean, Google unfortunately has has done itself you know no favours at all uh, over the last uh, few months. You know, they, they talk a good game. Um, there's been some really, you know, good sort of platitudes um, communicated, but, um, uh, but you know, it, it, it's clear that the substance behind the scenes is, 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 is lacking. And so, you know, we, we do see that as being predominantly uh, our mission is, is helping organizations understand that delta between, you know, what they're saying and what, the, what, what good practice looks like. And then um, it's not our job to implement the change. It's not our job to um, do the consulting necessary to fix the problems. Um, there's many other people out there who who do that, and you know we we don't want to be in that business because we don't want to be marking our own homework. Um, but um, but certainly we can help organisations understand the roadmap that they need to um, to go down to to fix these things. So yeah, I think yeah. it's super important to have that trust, like you said. You need the transparency, and unless someone goes asking Microsoft, they don't just give that information away. And how can we know that Microsoft is actually doing it different than Google? They both just tell us the same thing. But one company is actually implementing it, and the other company may or may not be, right? Not to say that Google isn't, but they've been in a bit of hot water lately so and this this is the thing about you know it's, it's expensive not to get these things right um yeah. you know the the um the negative pr that google suffered you know over december um you know i i couldn't begin to quantify that but it's you know it's 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 going to be significant and um you know obviously if you're a big tech company um you know maybe that's just the cost of doing business the fact that you're going to be in the in the firing lines, but if you're not a big tech company, and we saw, you know, British Airways suffer a significant data breach um, and and pay, you know, a, a massively discounted fine um, because you know they're, they're existing on sort of state supports like the rest of the aviation industry. But the question is, you know, were were British Airways um, 
were they unlucky? Were they just the the airline? You know, were they no worse than any other airline um, in terms of their governance, and they were just the ones that, that got caught out? Or you know, were they lagging massively behind their competitors? And and I think it's really those sort of questions that we are pretty well placed to answer. Um, and the research that we're doing is is going to help inform consumers around. And um, you know, we think that um, by but uh, by by yeah. By, by doing this work, by doing this analysis, and by publishing our results, um, it's going to give, you know, not everyone's going to care. I mean, a lot of people will, will only be guided by price or by features, and that's, you know, absolutely yeah. uh, their prerogative. But for those of us um, who who do really want to discern between um, um, suppliers or, or, or technology providers or partners, um, then um, you know we think this is going to be very useful, and um, as I say, for, for, for many organisations who you know who aren't known for tech, um, the cost of getting this wrong is so great that um, you know we think that we're providing a really valuable service to them, highlighting the risks ahead of time so that they can fix them, and so that it's hopefully somebody else's problem uh, and not their problem when it goes wrong. Excellent. I'm just surprised that we've been talking for the last hour. You haven't mentioned anything about my mustache. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> As if it would just go away, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, like most people in the UK do it for November, um, but you're, you're still going. Um, you, Charles. That's what I've got. <laughs> My mustache. I decided to be fasting and mustache. That didn't mustaching. Yeah, <laughs> mustaching. <laughs> so, man, awesome. Always a pleasure talking to you. I love hearing a little bit more insight on what you got going on. I love being able to recap this whole season because it goes through and it makes me think about the different episodes a little bit deeper and then hearing your take. I'm able to see, oh, yeah, okay. I guess that was another piece, something that may have just gone in one ear and out the other for me. It stuck for you, and so then we can have a conversation about that. So thank you, Charles, and I think that's all we got. you have any final last words? No, it's great. Um, I just uh, one question for you, though, Demetrius. Yeah, I'm a robot. Are you a robot? <laughs> I've gotten some. Good answers from this too, by the way. And it's always it's always so nice hearing people. I mean, I'd like to say that I'm not because a robot can't go five days without eating. Yes, it can. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I am, I got some hardwiring wrong because I'm fasting right now. So and I have a mustache. So whatever, I need a new OS. Because this one, horribly it's a out feature. Of it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> exactly. All right, Bye, man. my friends. Talking to you. I'll see you later. Speak soon. Take care, buddy. Bye.